Turn with me again to Mark 14. And we're going to take verse 15 as our text this evening. Mark 14 and verse 15. <clears throat> the words of the Lord Jesus to the disciples. He said, And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. Now you will know that our church committee a few weeks ago decided to formally and officially call our new extension upstairs the upper room. Now, I think this started off just as, as it were, a physical designation of the location of the new extension. It's in the upper room at the back. We all knew where we were talking about. But the more I thought about it, and the more it went on, the greater the spiritual significance it carried, and the greater weight that it carried in my own mind. The name, of course, is taken from Mark 14, 15, Luke 22, and verse 12 as well. This was to be the final meeting place prior to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus with his disciples. It carried with a great significance. It was the appointed place where he chose to celebrate with them uh, the Jewish feast of the Passover. As I read through Mark's Gospel once again, I was struck by all the unusual places that Jesus met with the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. And the variety of the meeting places is just amazing. We can say, as one of old, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. It doesn't matter where we meet as long as Jesus meets with us. He met with them on the shore of Galilee. He met with them in the fishing village of Capernaum. He met with them on a boat on the sea as they were fishing. He met with them as they were going through the storm on the sea. There are different mountainsides and uh, uh, locations that he met with them. He met with them in desert places, in Jerusalem and Samaria, in Jericho and Bethpage and in Bethany. All of these places are, are noted as places where Jesus met with the apostolic band. And they didn't mind where they met with him so long as they were with him and they were together with him. And may that devotion of heart always characterize our lives. In the past few weeks out in Kenya, I was struck again by the different places that we met with the believers. We met with the believers in a schoolroom. We met with the believers in a bookroom. We met with the believers on the top story of, uh, of the equivalent of a boarding house here in Northern Ireland. We met with the believers in a little uh, church building uh, just way out in the rural part of the countryside. All the places were so different and so diverse, but each place we were privileged to meet with them in the presence of the Saviour. It's not that this incident here in Mark chapter 14 took place during the Passion Week. If we're to put it into the equivalence of our own days, probably on the Tuesday of the week. Remember the Lord Jesus, he didn't stay in Jerusalem during that past Passion Week. The last week prior to the crucifixion, he stayed in Bethany. Bethany was a little village about two miles from Jerusalem. And they walked to and forth uh, to Jerusalem from there. And whilst they were in Bethany, he sent two of the disciples, as it were, as an advance guard to Jerusalem to prepare a place that they might observe the Jewish feast of the Passover together. Sometimes we deride tradition. But you know, the Lord Jesus honoured tradition. Not all tradition is bad. It's only vain tradition that is bad. 
And so he honoured even the Jewish Passover feast that remembered the great events from the book of Exodus when the children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt by blood in victory from their bondage and were freed and, and were set free to the promised land. Now we know from Luke 22 verse 8 that the two men who were sent with the Lord Jesus were Peter and John. So this was pretty important. It was their job to go on ahead of the apostolic band and to prepare all of the arrangements for the Passover feast. And they went blind. They didn't know where they were going. Jesus just told them to go and they went. And he gave them very vague general instructions. And as they went, as they obeyed, God opened up the way for them. And that's the same with you and I. Oftentimes, before God opens up the way, we have to start on the way. And maybe there's some of you here tonight and you're wondering how the way ahead will open up. Maybe the way ahead hasn't opened up for you because you haven't started on the way. You need to step out in faith on the way in order for God to open up the way. And the events which took place in that upper room, they were of such immense spiritual significance that they literally changed all of history. The church of Jesus Christ will always look back with thanksgiving for Passion Week. But the church of Jesus Christ will look back with thanksgiving for the events that took place in the upper room because we remember those events. Every time we're at this table, we remember those events. Because what happened in that upper room was initiated, what happened at this table was initiated in the upper room. I pray that as we open our own new extension next weekend, that the spiritual significance of the events that will take place up there will change countless lives in the years that lie ahead. And I couldn't help but think of some spiritual parallels. You'll forgive me if I've taken a little bit of liberty. Every preacher's entitled to a little bit of liberty and interpretation between Mark 14 and how we're marking history in our own way here and on along as we consider some of those parallels of this upper room in Jerusalem and that upper room at the back of our building. So firstly, I want you to notice something important. It was only Christ who knew all the information about the upper room. Only Christ. Commentators believe that the information was kept secret from the rest in the apostolic band because the Lord Jesus would not allow Judas to betray him early. We have read in those opening verses that we started off with, Mark 14, how Judas wanted, he went and he betrayed the Saviour for a certain amount of money and he wanted just a convenient place to betray him. And the Lord Jesus was not going to give him that opportunity. There was a set place, there was a set time, there was a set moment where the Lord Jesus would be taken captive. And Judas was not going to know about it earlier. Now the, the directions that were given to Peter and John as they left Bethany to go to Jerusalem, they were so vague that Judas possibly couldn't have 
known what day the Lord Jesus was inferring, nor could he have ever misused the information and passed it on to the, the, the guards of the high priest so that the Lord Jesus could be arrested earlier. They were told to go to Jerusalem and there they would find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now it was very unusual because men did not car, carry pitchers of water. It was the women who carried pitchers of water. If men carried water it would have been in, in a goat skin underneath their arm, slung round their arm like that. But it was the women who carried it in the pitcher of water on their shoulder or on their head. And so what would have been a very unusual sight. One man in the busy streets of Jerusalem carrying a pitcher of water was what they were told to look out for. It might have been looking for, to you and I, uh, like looking for a needle in a haystack, but it would have stuck out to the Jewish mind. But they went without questioning. They didn't say, Lord, that's very unusual. You'll not find a man carrying a pitcher of water in Jerusalem. Men don't do those type of things. But they went, even as it had been told unto them. And they saw the man with the pitcher of water, and they followed him. That's all they were told to do. And they followed him. And they came to the house that he entered into. And they met the good man of the house. The owner of the house. The man who was in control of the home. They met him. And they were simply to ask him. Look how they introduced themselves to him. Verse 14. They were to go to him and they said. Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now the chamber of course is just a room. It's just a room where people met. So the guest chamber was the guest room in the house. This is very wonderful. It tells us something about this house. It was probably a guest house. And the room that has been spoken of here was a room obviously large enough to accommodate a certain amount of guests. And the Bible tells us it was all furnished. It was furnished with everything that would have provided for the meal. So there would have been enough couches there because in those days of course they just didn't sit at the table but they reclined in, in the couches from the table and every provision was made for the guests at that particular meal and they were simply to ask and the good man he must have been a believer because without questioning Peter and John and he'd never met them before he acquiesced to their request now what strikes me is the Bible doesn't even tell us this man's name. We don't even know the name of this dear man. And yet he opened his home to these total strangers just because the master said. You know when the master speaks he has a claim upon everything that you and I own and everything that you and I profess to be. The master spoke. The master saith. And this man recognised that this was the voice of authority speaking to him. The master says, I want what you have. And he gave what he had for the master to use. And is that not a lesson even for you and I this evening? All of us have something we can give. You mightn't have a guest room that's big enough to accommodate 12, 13 men. You mightn't have that space in your home, but what you have in your home, it all belongs to the master, and he wants to make use of it. You know, sometimes I, I do believe that we make very little use of our home for the master's service. 
owner in the past year, how much use have you made of your home for the master's service? This is hospitality we're talking about here. This man was to provide hospitality for all of these strangers. We're not even told, we're not even, it's not even intimated that there was any payment made for the services that were rendered. No, he just threw his home open. It was an, a, 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 a commodious accommodation and he gave them everything that they needed. Whatever he had, it was at the master's hands. There's so many lessons here for us to learn. We have evidence here of the divinity of Christ. He saw what was happening in Jerusalem. He had it all planned out. That man was there at the right time. Do you think it was just a chance happening? There was a man carrying a pitcher that Jesus told them about. He was there just at the right time. He was there just at the right place. The Peter and John went to the right home. Everything was fitting into its proper place and its proper time and its proper order. And he was working everything out. He had already gone before them in order that the Passover would be would be observed by the by the Lord Jesus and His disciples for the last time. I am glad that every piece of information about our own upper room is known by Christ. There's nobody in this building tonight, minister committee session, there's nobody in this building knows all the information about that upper room. God knows all about it. He knows every hour, he knows every minute, he knows every member who has contributed to it. I think that's a wonderful thing. He put it in the hearts of individuals to give what they have, to do what they could in order that that upper room would be furnished and prepared. Just as he worked in the heart of the good man of that house, so he put it in the hearts of those in this congregation to prepare it, to furnish it, and to get it ready. This is the work of the Lord. This is the work of the Master, as he is noted here. He knows everyone who is given sacrificially to it. He knows all the preparation that has gone into getting it ready for next Saturday. And others might never know what you have done. Others might never know what you have given. But it's enough that he knows. The good man's name is still a secret. And it will remain a secret until that day when we stand before God in the judgment. And then all of eternity will know the name of the good man of the house. But until that day, he has his own reward. And I just want to encourage all of you who have been labouring and preparing the upper room. I just want to encourage all of you to say tonight, Christ knows. The master knows. And that should be comfort enough and challenge enough for all our hearts. In Genesis 15 and verse 1, we've that first fear not in the Bible. And it comes to Abraham. Remember, Abraham's coming back from the battle. He's just uh, freed his wayward nephew, Lot. And he's, he is coming back and... He could, have, he could have been given great riches, but he wouldn't even take a shoelace from Sodom, the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. He wouldn't even take a shoelace from them. <clears throat> and so the Lord said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. 
and die exceeding great reward. Listen, we don't need the reward of men when we're assured of the reward of heaven. In Matthew 6 and 2, we've been looking at those verses and they've really struck my mind and uh, I have used them other than an on along over these past months. We're, we're great in this day and age of fundraising and I'm not against fundraising per se. I'm not against making the need known. I'm not against that, so don't go away and say that, please. But we read there in Matthew 6, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When somebody has to blow the trumpet in the street, look what I have given. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6 and verse 2. If you have to blow your own trumpet about what you have given, then you've given not to God, you've given as unto men. And you will have your own reward. But Matthew 6 and 4 tells us that thine alms may be in secret. You're giving alms, alms giving. You're, you're giving may be in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And the reward surely has to be that Christ took possession of the good man's chamber and he came and he used it. And that's all I want. I want Christ to come and take possession of that upper room. And I just want him to come and use it. Many of you have been using your talents in preparing the upper room. It has been over the past year plus a, a great congregational effort. There's been labouring, there's been building, there's been plastering, there's been joinery, there's been painting, there's been cleaning. The list absolutely is endless. And many have contributed in such an amazing fashion. And yes, your contribution may not be known by others, but Christ knows. Look at verse 17. All of the preparation work was done with the expectation that Jesus would come. That Jesus would come and take possession of the upper room. And all of their work would have been in vain if he hadn't have come. And did he fulfill their expectations? Well look at verse 17. In the evening he cometh with the twelve. <coughs> Jesus came. He came. He came to that upper room. We don't suspect <coughs> that there was a big crowd there. There was the twelve. Maybe there were servants there as well in the guest chamber because the Passover meal was quite an elaborate affair. But that was all. In, the, in a, Comparatively speaking, it was a small gathering. But he came. I'm glad that Jesus comes to our gatherings. And I pray that that upper room will be a place where Christ comes. A place of fellowship with the Saviour. I know in the upper room we will hold midweek meetings. They're beset formal times for corporate worship. <clears throat> but I just want to stop here and say something to you. 
Remember this house that Jesus celebrated the Passover in and instituted the Lord's Supper in? It was a guest house. It was primarily a place for fellowship. For fellowship. And I want that upper room to be a place of fellowship. I want it to be a place of friendship. I want it to be a place where family environment is nurtured and maintained, where good food is served, where people uh, have an opportunity to interact and, and enjoy each other's company, one with the other. That's why we've reserved one room, and we haven't just got that one room finished yet, but eventually we want to put sofas in it. <clears throat> and some easy chairs where the older people, the younger people, can go quietly and chat together and share fellowship and have time together. That's exactly what the guest chamber would have been where Christ met his disciples. We shouldn't hurry people away from the house of God. We'll discover just in a little second, the Lord Jesus didn't hurry them away. A place of fellowship a place where those of like spirits and kindred spirit can meet and grow and develop. Christ knew all about it. We give that upper room to him. We pray that he'll come and use it. Secondly, notice <coughs> there was a solemn investigation made in this upper room. This was guided by the Saviour himself and it led to the exposure of a false Professor, Judas. Nobody suspected Judas. He was the treasurer amongst the apostolic band. We read about him there in verse 18 and in verse 19. Jesus said, Verily, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Can you imagine the shock that that must have been to that apostolic band? They trusted each other. They depended upon each other. But Judas had sold his soul for a paltry sum of money. And the Lord Jesus started the, the, the line of investigation and the apostles continued it. And sorrowfully they inquired one of the other. They said, is it I? Of course the application is very, very plain. We need to examine our own hearts. I want every individual to examine their own heart in the meeting tonight. <clears throat> we always say prior to coming to the Lord's table, you should examine your heart. That's what the word of God says. Let a man examine himself. There are some people very good at examining others, but the Bible says you examine yourself. Do some self-examination. And as the apostles examined their own selves, their own hearts, their own lives, well, the heart of Judas was being laid bare. And he was being identified as one of the twelve who was dipping his bread in uh, the equivalent, I suppose, of, of our gravy or the oil at that very time. And the Saviour was making it plain that such treachery was the very worst thing possible. Look at verse 21 he said the son of man indeed goeth it as is written on him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. You know, this was Christ's final warning to Judas. 
He never, another, he never had another opportunity. It was late in the evening. And though he had struck a deal with the, the high priests, how he could conveniently betray Christ, he still could have got out of it. Even at that late moment, he still could have repented. He still could have turned away from the evil deed that he was contemplating. He had an opportunity to get right with God. He had an opportunity to repent of his sin, to seek mercy and to seek pardon and to seek favour. <clears throat> and every Sunday in this house, sinners have an opportunity to put their lives right with God. We'll have special meetings in that upper room. We'll have meetings for the youth. We'll have meetings for the children and the adults. There will be many opportunities for individuals to put their lives right with God under the sound of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray that it will be a place where there's self-examination, where the Spirit of God will delve into the consciences of all who are gathered in and where the Holy Spirit will expose, expose empty hearts, expose false professions before it is too late. John 13, if you turn over there just a little bit, Fills out the narrative a little bit for us. John 13 verse 25 to 30. <clears throat> We're in the upper room again. This is John's account of it. <clears throat> we read. <clears throat> John was lying on the breast of Jesus. And he said to Jesus. Lord who is it? Who, who is it? Who is the betrayer? Jesus answered. He it is to whom I shall give a sup or a morsel when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sup, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Can you imagine what must have happened at that moment? All of the, all of the eyes of the apostolic band, now they're placed on Judas. Jesus has identified him very clearly as the one who is going to betray him. And what happens afterwards? And one of the most solemn verses in the Bible. It says, after the sop, Satan entered into him. It was too late for Judas. It was too late for him. He'd had the moment to repent. He refused to repent. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. He could no longer hide Satan took control and Jesus dismissed him from the table. In fact, he was put out. He just dismissed him. What you're going to do, you go and do it. But don't sit here. Go and do it. If you're going to go to hell and the devil, go to hell and the devil. But you go and do it. There's no more solemn words in all of the Bible. And can I say to all who are in this evening, if you're unconverted, how many, how many opportunities have you had to repent and turn to Christ? Countless. Countless opportunities. But if you refuse to repent, there will come a moment just like Judas Iscariot of old when all of your opportunities are gone. The sop will be given to you. Jesus will say to you, you go and do it. Whatever you're going to do, you go and do it. But there's no turning back. 
And Judas went out, the Bible tells us, it was night. It was not only physically night, but he went out in the darkness of his soul and out into the darkness of a lost eternity. The upper room <coughs> was the gate of heaven, but it also was the doorway to hell for others. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel's a savour of life unto some, a savour of death unto others. And it's such a sobering thought. I've thought about this all week. We open that upper room and there'll be people who come into that upper room and by the grace of God they'll take the opportunity, they'll enter into Christ and they'll enter into salvation. But there's others and they will refuse the gospel, they will refuse the opportunity and they'll take the doorway to hell. Where are you tonight? Where's your life tonight? Don't miss this opportunity. This day of grace. As investigation is made in your life tonight. In this meeting house. We don't have to go into that upper room. You don't have to leave your seat. You know exactly what's going on in your heart tonight. And if your heart is not right with God. Put it right with God tonight. It could be. It could be a final opportunity. For you to close in with God's mercy. Our time is gone. But I'll just mention. Briefly to you. Two other thoughts. <clears throat> Notice the instruction given by Christ. In the upper room. We'll go to John 13. And, and verse 27. John 13 and verse 27. If you go to John 13 verse 27. And right to the end of chapter 14. This is what Matthew Henry calls. Christ's table talk with his disciples. So Judas is gone and they're sitting around the table and nobody's in a rush to go because this is a guest house. They're here to stay. They're not just coming in and going out as it were. And when the Lord Jesus was left with his other disciples, the table talk that he gave to them is the rest of John's chapter John's Gospel chapter 13 right into John's Gospel chapter 14 and some people think right up to the end of John's Gospel chapter 16 which has come to be known as the Paschal Discourse. This was instruction that was given to the disciples in the upper room. What were they taught about? Well they were taught about the death and the sufferings of Christ. They were taught concerning the new commandment. They were taught about their own selves, their sinful pride. Peter had to be taught, Peter, don't blow. Don't blow, Peter, what you'll do. Lord Jesus taught him, Peter, before the cock grows three times, you will deny me. And then we have those lovely words in chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe in me also. Oh, there's comfort for the child of God here. In this upper room discourse. And then we come to that great high priestly prayer in John 17. We want that upper room to be a place of instruction. Where saints are instructed in the ways of God. Where the Bible is open. Where people are taught. I want it to be a place of fellowship. I want it to be a place of fun. I want it to place where people can relax, can feel comfortable. I want it to be a place where, where we can sit around the table and talk about the things of God as they did in that upper room all of those years ago. We think of the ladies' fellowship. 
We think of all the youth meetings. There's a great challenge for us here in on along of, of uh, recommencing once again a youth fellowship. I think of the catechism classes. I haven't forgotten about them. In October, we plan to have a men's conference in that upper room. I, I would love to have quarterly lectures in that upper room on various different subjects of theology and, and history. And we can invite different speakers to come along. We, we have to, as it were, look back. We have to uh, contemplate the great, the great riches of church history that the Lord has given to us in that upper room. As a session, we're open to suggestions as to how the space in the upper room can be used to instruct the saints in the ways of righteousness and point sinners on the way to heaven and to home. Can you notice finally with me? Go back to Mark 14. Of course, the upper room was the place for the institution, for the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 22 to verse 25. Mark 14 verse 22 we read As they did eat Jesus took bread Now we know the Passover meal focused upon the lamb The lamb that was slain But now toward the end of that meal The focus has shifted And Jesus directs the attention from the, the lamb that was slain To the lamb that would be slain To himself and he took bread. Every, of course, all the parts of the, the Passover were all greatly were, were filled with symbolism. Every part of it was filled with symbolism. And now the Lord Jesus gave great symbolic meaning to the bread. He said, Take eat, this is my body. He was reminding them that just in a few hours' time, on his body on the tree, he would suffer. All their guilt, all their pain, all their punishment. He would bear their, their accursed load. Well, what a thought. He, he, he gave the cup. And he said, drink ye all of it. The cup reminding them of the blood that he shed on, on their behalf. And then he said in verse uh, 25, I will drink no more of the fruit <coughs> of this vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of of God. I've been reading some of the commentaries on this and it's wonderful to think <clears throat> did the Lord Jesus observe a Passover in heaven? No because he's waiting for all of the saints to gather in heaven and they're all going to be congregated at the final marriage supper of the Lamb every one of them is going to be there he's going to Eat and drink with all of his church. What a picture. All that final number will be gathered in. The Lord doesn't force you to do this. He said to the disciples, take eight. He wasn't forcing it down their throat. He said, take eight. We can't force the gospel on people. This is something that you do from a heart that's prepared of God. If you haven't taken the Lord Jesus by faith this evening and received him as your own and personal Lord, you have another opportunity to do so even tonight. It's just what happened there at that table. is just a picture of what's going to happen in glory and heaven to come. And we're told at the end of it all they sung a hymn. 
Jesus sang. I, I want you to get that. Jesus sang. They sang a hymn. It was a psalm. The psalms that were sung at the Passover. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Jesus sang the final time with his disciples before he went out into Gethsemane. I believe Psalm 118. It is no wonder that we love the singing of the Psalms of Zion. And those Psalms remind us of some wonderful truths. One of the commentators said when Jesus arose to go to Gethsemane, Psalm 118 was upon his lips. And it provided an appropriate description of how God would guide his Messiah through distress and suffering to glory. I want that upper room to be a place where we sing the praise of Zion. Where we sing these old fashioned hymns and psalms of the historic Christian church. I want it to be a place where people sing. I look out on Sunday here and I see some people, they're not singing. But you know, if Jesus could sing with his disciples, we all can sing. You can lift your voice in praise to Almighty God. It doesn't have to be in tune as it was somebody else's voice. It doesn't have to be as good as somebody else's voice. We're here collectively to sing. We're not here in competition one with another. We're just here to sing. And Jesus sang the night before he was crucified. He sang going to the cross. May the Lord put that song in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. May the Lord, as we would bear our cross for him, may he help us to sing. And I hope in the upper room and on alone there will be much singing of the old psalms. I hope that upper room will never be a place, I pray, it will never be a place where the equivalent of the praise band is put in the corner. I pray it will always be a place where the Psalter is opened. Where the hymns of Zion are loved. Now I know geographically, structurally, our upper room is a world apart from the upper room that Jesus met with his disciples all of those thousands of years ago. But there is a parallel. And there are spiritual lessons for us to learn. It's a place where he's to be honoured. We know that. It's a place where saints can fellowship and share each other's joys and, and share each other's uh, sorrows. It's a place where his redeeming death and sacrificial blood, will, I hope, will always be revered. It's a place where the old ways of Zion will always be loved. May God bless that upper room. To his glory. Let's unite in prayer.